welcome to the One Mind Podcast from AboutMeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. Today, I'm excited to share with you my interview with a former mentor of mine, meditation teacher Jeff Carrera. Now, before we jump into the interview, I want to ask you, if you benefit from listening to this podcast, can you let me know? Leave me a rating and a review over on iTunes. It's a great way to pay it forward and help other meditators discover this podcast. So back to today's interview. For a number of years, I worked as Jeff's assistant director of education at an educational charity that we worked at. It was the yoga and meditation ashram that I've spoken about before. And we created courses together in meditation and spirituality. Jeff has always been a major source of inspiration to me and really to hundreds and thousands of people. He's a wonderful teacher and he has an irrepressible spirit of inquiry that never stops. And today, Jeff and I, we explore his unique approach to teaching meditation, an approach which he calls the practice of no problem. And we delve into how that practice, which is amazing, helps you deal with challenging emotions both in life and in the meditative process. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview today. It's packed with wisdom and inspiration. And you're going to learn all about what Jeff calls the two miraculous gifts of meditation. So let's jump in to this interview with Jeff Carrera. Jeff, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you joined us today. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Morgan. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. So today, I'd love to talk a little bit about your unique approach to teaching meditation. You teach something called the practice of no problem. Can you tell us a little bit about what this practice actually is? And before you do that, create a picture for us and, and tell us the story of how you came to develop this approach to meditation. Sure. I've been meditating for many years and have done different styles of meditation at different times. But the, the main one I did was with a spiritual teacher who taught, he taught meditation as letting everything be as it is. And it's a very simple practice, very much like uh, zazen, which means mm -hmm. just sitting. And it really is just sitting. You, you sit and you let everything be exactly the way it is. As simple as this sounds, of course, it's very subtle and immediately becomes very difficult. So over years of practice, what eventually emerged for me was the power of 
changing those instructions slightly to be have no problem. I had found that that particular perspective on the practice was the one that had the biggest impact on me. And I've had mm. different uh, opportunities at different times to experience profound insight based on the practice. But for me, the pr meditation didn't come particularly naturally. The first time I meditated, uh, I was simply trying to complete five minutes. And I think I made it through about two and a half minutes before I decided that I wasn't going to be able to meditate and I, I quit. That was my first meditation attempt. And at the time I thought it was going to be my last, but in the end I picked up the practice again a few years later. But I just found it impossible to sit because my mind was driving me crazy. You know, all the thoughts that start to yeah. arise. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to that. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that was kind of the beginning, I guess, of my recognition that there was something about the way I was relating to my mind that was driving me crazy, that kept convincing me that there was something wrong hmm. and then making me feel compelled to do something to fix the problem. Right. So in terms of your question about the practice of no problem and the way that I teach meditation. Uh, yeah. Fundamentally, what I see is that most of us live inside of an almost constant assumption that there's something wrong. Even when things are good, there are still aspects of it that are wrong. And we're very well trained to constantly be seeking out problems and solving them. And so we live in this constant sense that there's something wrong, that the way things are is not the way they should be, that things should be better or should be different or should be other than they are. And we are constantly striving and trying to create the perfect circumstances that we believe exist somewhere else besides here. Hmm. And that fundamental sense of dissatisfaction with the way things are leads to an existential unhappiness you know, an, un, an existential mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. of discontent. And as I see it, the first miraculous gift of true meditation is discovering an unconditional sense of contentment with exactly the way things are, no matter how they are. Mm. You know, and that's what the practice of no problem is a, is a meditation, is an approach to meditation that's, designed to bring us directly into an experience of deliberately chosen contentment. So this is amazing. I have two questions. One, that they relate to different parts of what you just said. The, the first question is this sense of living within this fundamental assumption that something is wrong, which you kind of diagnosed as a, it's like a cultural epidemic. Is that something you think has always been that way with human beings or is that something is that, so for example is that related to our evolutionary development where it used to really serve us to be on guard for our survival so like that's one question or is it more of a is it more of a postmodern or modern phenomenon that the human being really lives a lot more in their mind 
or a combination of those things. So that's my first question. Well, yeah, why don't I'd love I'd love to just hear your your thoughts on that first, and then we can move on. I would say that it would make sense to me that this is an evolutionary carryover. Yeah, you know, through the process of evolving, and I think as modern and postmodern individuals, that sense that there's something wrong takes on uh, particular flavors, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that, that weren't there maybe earlier in our evolutionary history. But even if you think back to pre-human evolution, you can imagine that most animals, in order to survive, would need to be in a fairly constant state of alertness. Yeah. You know, you just, if you imagine just animals living in the wild, they live in a constant state of alertness. You know, if you look at a bunny, they're just constantly jumping at, yeah. at each sound because it's, it's a dangerous world. And in order to be able to avoid harm, you need to be alert and tense. Right. If you get too relaxed and too calm, then you're going to become vulnerable. So I think fundamentally that's where it comes from. And then as we have evolved into human beings, and, and as you said, we have a, a very alive mental world, uh, we're no longer you know, walking down the street tense because we're afraid that a lion is going to jump out and eat us. We have much more sophisticated things that we're afraid of, uh, money and jobs and relationships. And they tend to be more cognitive concerns right. in the sense that they're, you know, they're not sort of immediately life-threatening. They involve a complex understanding of the world even to come into being. But the fundamental energy, which is the kind of self-defensive posture, is probably yeah. a holdover from a long, long time ago. Hmm. That, that's helpful. All right. And then the second part of my question was, when you started to describe the first miraculous gift of meditation is this recognition that really everything is okay. When you said that, I related to that from my own experience, from my very first spiritual experience ever was something very, resonated very deeply with what you said. And it was just this discovery that I understood that life was good beyond anything I could think or know. I knew it was beyond what I could even understand, that it was good beyond measure, that life itself was just uh, miraculously, uncontainably good. And I wanted to ask you, like, when you describe that, where does that conviction in you come from? That understanding, were there a series of experiences? Was there one experience in particular, what led you to that basic conviction mm-hmm. in, in, that, in that first miraculous gift of meditation? Right. I've had numerous spiritual experiences, many of which came directly out of the practice of meditation. But the way that I relate to those experiences is that more than anything else, each experience would confirm for me that reality was profoundly larger and different from Mm. what I had ever imagined. One of the early 
meditation experiences I had that, that was particularly profound involved doing this practice of letting everything be as it is and very sincerely trying to let go of each thought and feeling as it arose. And then as you do that, of course, you become aware of more and more subtle thoughts and more and more subtle feelings. And, and it almost feels like there's an acceleration. Uh, mm. And I started to feel a panic, almost physical. In fact, it was a physical panic because I was feeling so overwhelmed by the process of letting go until at some point I just relaxed. And my awareness, you know, the place that I was seeing from mm. slipped out of my mind. And the only way I can describe it is to say that it, it was as if my awareness slipped out through the back of my head. Wow. And uh, I could see my mind and I could see my thoughts and feelings, but they, they, it now looked like a beehive of activity that I was, that I had always lived inside of, but now I was outside of it. Right. And out there, you know, the normal sense of tension and activity uh, and buzzing confusion was gone. It was like finding yourself floating in an infinite sea mm -hmm. and feeling completely at peace and then noticing that this mind was buzzing away. That experience lasted for a few days and then it faded and, and eventually I was back in the middle of my mind. But from that point on, I could never, I always knew that there was something more. Right. That the experience I was having of being a person inside of a mind and an experience of being human was not the limit of what was possible. And so mm -hmm. it created a sense of wonder and it put me directly in contact with the miraculous enormity of existence, which I suppose is akin to when you say life is good. Yeah. I shy away from words like good because they're inherently relative. So if something is good, it implies that it could be bad. Mm. Even though I would agree that, that life is good, the way that I mean it, and I think the way that you mean it, is not it's good as opposed to bad. It means it's inherently positive. Yeah, I you think know. positive, positive and infinite maybe better words. Right. And so I've had, you know, many different experiences, experiences where I lost the capacity to be unconscious. So I was consciously aware and awake even through periods of sleep for a number of days where I would just feel my body fall asleep but I would stay awake and I would watch myself go through the different cycles of sleep, you know, complete blackness and then the arising of dreams and then the dreams go away and then there's blackness and then dreams come and go. And the whole time I'm inside there and I am just aware that my body is sleeping and my mind is going through this, the different stages of sleep, but I'm awake. And mm -hmm. what does that mean? that my mind and body can be sleeping and I can be awake. I mean, it clearly means I am not my mind or my body. Right. You know, and that's just, just, just your mind yes, and your body. I am not just my mind and my body. Hmm. That I am more than that. And again, it, that just leaves you with this sense that we exist inside of a miracle, the boundaries of which we have no idea. Uh, right. And so it just creates an enormous amount of inner emotional space because 
one of the ways that I like to think about this is we live in, as you said, an infinite reality, and mm -hmm. we have no idea how small a sample of reality we're actually looking at. Right. And, you know, and yet we're drawing conclusions about the whole thing. It's as if you lived in one town for six months and that was the entire experience you had of the planet Earth and you were drawing all kinds of conclusions about the way life on Earth is. Yeah. You know, and we have no, and, and that's probably a pretty big sample compared to our sample of the infinite expanse of being. I find it dizzying to try and sometimes think. And I, I don't know if this has come from things that you've said or whether it came from our former teacher, Andrew Cohen, or whatever, or Ken Wilber, but the idea of sometimes trying to imagine you're looking through one vantage point, which is your your eyes, yourself, and everything that makes me up, my whole, you know, the sum total of my experience, which is creating the lens through which I'm seeing that village for six months or that little place. But then there's billions of vantage points. And that when you start to think about, there's billions of versions of me looking out with their whole separate distinct versions of what they're seeing. And then you add that up, that's only the kind of total of the people here on earth. And that we don't know how many vantage points there are. There kind of seems like there could be infinite ones. And that always stretches my mind. Like mm -hmm. it breaks my mind when I start to think about that is like, it's enough to just take in your own single perspective and be fully cognizant and present with it. But then that's what I think of when you talk about how dazzlingly larger than what we can cognize, perceive and understand that, reality actually is mm -hmm. there's ways to stretch your mind to see it and then there's certain things like meditation which just fully take you out of yourself right and just to follow that thought for a moment you know it's interesting to consider even just this one planet because as you said our perspective on reality is pretty vast as an individual and we're one of you know six or so billion hum yeah. human perspectives but that's only the human experience of reality. There's all kinds of other animals that have experiences that are not human experiences, but they are also valid. Right. And some people would even question whether what we classically consider non-living things have perspectives that would need to be considered if we were going to consider the whole. Right. And so even on this one planet, which is one of trillions upon trillions as you said, it just becomes incredibly dizzying to consider the possibilities. Yeah. You were going on a thread. I can't even remember. But you were eventually going to get to the second miraculous gift of meditation. Right. Let me finish off with the first gift. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, in terms of the, the practice itself of no problem. Um, yes. I think the fundamental issue... I could say that this practice is specifically designed to work on is a sense of judgmental separation from reality. Mm. So if you think that there's a problem, if you think that there is something wrong with the way things are, and if most of us look at our lives, we'll see that our lives are pretty much governed by ideas that something is wrong. You know, we need a new job, we need a new relationship, we need a new 
house, we need more money. You know, there's always something that's driving us. Right. You know, some form of deficiency. And that is always going to be based on some belief about the way life should be that it currently isn't. We can imagine the way life should be and we can see that the way it is and the difference is the problem. Right. And what's interesting about that is if we really want to start to think about meditation experience, we have to start to question the assumption that life should be some way other than the way it is. Mm -hmm. Because life is just the way it is. Reality is the way it is. Reality at this moment is exactly the way it is and it couldn't be any different. You know, everything that's happened up until this moment has led to exactly the experience that we're having right now. And since there's no way to change the past, there's no way to change the present either. Now, that doesn't mean the future can't be different than the present, but the present can't be other than it is. So the idea that we live inside of, which is that somehow the present should be some other way, is basically a false idea that could only ever lead to a sense of dissatisfaction because there isn't any way to make the present anything other than what it is. Right. You know, that's the beauty of this, the way that, that we were taught this practice, which is let everything be as it is. It took me a long time to get this, but at some point I really got, oh, if I let everything be as it is, or if that's my goal, there's literally nothing to do because everything already is the way it is. Hmm. And everything always will be the way. There isn't, there's never a time when things are the way they aren't. Right. right? They always are the way they are. So there's literally nothing to do. And this first miracle of meditation is in different forms, one way or another, people who work with this meditation practice eventually run into the reality that there's literally nothing you can do. Not only is there nothing to do to let everything be as it is, but there's nothing you can do that would make things be other than the way they are. There's literally no way out of these instructions. Mm -hmm. And when you really get that, something releases, some existential tension releases you know, it's deeper than your body, it's deeper than your mind, it's sort of in your soul or in your spirit, a sense of okayness, which is the contentment that I mentioned earlier. It's not some kind of explosive joy. I mean, you can have those kinds of experiences, but deeper than those is just a permeating sense of contentment that actually everything's okay. Everything mm -hmm. is the way it is. And then what happens when people... You know, before they have experienced that, when they're just imagining the possibility of experiencing it, like people might be listening to this interview, yeah. there's a part of you that goes, well, if I allow myself to be content with the way things are, then I won't be motivated to do anything. I'll just be yeah, become a exactly. couch potato, you know, or something. Yeah. But that's because the habit of being motivated by the sense of deficiency and the sense that there's something wrong is sort of the only one we know. It's the only operating system that we know. We know that as long as I stay focused on the fact that there's something wrong and, and the problems that I need to face, then 
the awareness of those problems and that deficiency will generate the energy that will keep me moving and keep me creating. Yeah. And we're used to that. And so if, if someone comes along and says, well, why don't you just practice being totally content with the way things are? You say, well, then I'll be giving up my entire operating system and I'll just kind of won't do anything. Right. So this leads to the second miracle of meditation. Just want to say that was really good because I was going to ask you, how is it do you find that people fight against the reality of things being what they are or try and change just the simple truth that things are what they are and you can't actually change that. But And I think you just gave a really good example of one of the ways that we resist that truth or that reality of just the simplicity of being, the simplicity of things being as they are. Good. Well, I'm glad I anticipated your question. You did. <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, that leads us to the second miracle of meditation. Once you discover that kind of chosen contentment with the way things are, which means for most of us, we're going to have to go through the uncertainty and the confusion and even the fear that we're going to lose our motivation. You know, we're going to lose our will to live if we get content, you know, at that existential level. But if we are able to do it, what we find is that there's an entirely other operating system ready to kick in as soon as we let go of the old one. Mm. And the new operating system isn't based in deficiency. It's not powered by pushing off of what's wrong. It's based on the recognition of possibility. And it's pulled forward into potentials. You know, so it's, it's not sitting in a sense that there's something wrong and I need to fix what's wrong in order that things can be better, which is the old operating system. It's sitting in a recognition that everything is perfect the way it is. Everything is exactly the way, the only way it could be. And there's so much more possible. Mm. And, and so, you, so, the, so experientially, the difference is that one is sort of a struggle against the way things are in order to fill up the deficiencies, the perceived deficiencies. The other is like falling in love with possibility that literally pulls you forward into as yet unrealized potentials. And the recognition that there are potentials that have not yet been realized don't at all make you feel dissatisfied with the way things are. In fact, the way things are is the perfect ground to step forward from into new potentials. You know, and so the whole yeah. thing is perfection becoming more perfect, fullness becoming more full. And so you never have to operate from a sense of dissatisfaction. You, you're actually completely capable of operating from satisfaction to satisfaction indefinitely. That's great. So I want to ask this question, which is, and you, you hinted at this a little bit earlier. I think what a lot of people struggle with it's kind of a two-part question. A lot of people struggle with, in our day and age, they struggle with their emotional sense of self, their emotions, particularly powerful emotions. And 
one thing you said about the value of a practice like this right away, meditation helps create more space around powerful emotions. But I wanted to ask, how does the practice of no problem help people deal with challenging emotions? And how would you coach or teach someone who is struggling with, say, a challenging emotional pattern? That's one part of the question. And then relating that to what you just said, because I don't want to, it was very powerful what you just described about the second real gift of meditation is the discovery of this this new operating system, one where you're drawn forward into life by the recognition and the pull of potentials and possibilities. If you could build a bridge between these two things, like the often challenging prickly nature of just the, the raw human experience, there's obviously nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just what it is. It is what we're made of. And we've all experienced challenges, abuses, trauma in our life. I don't know any adults who don't have trauma and there's differing degrees of the degree to which we've integrated that, processed it and healed through it. So how do you see your approach to meditation really helping with that? And then how does it relate to this new ground that you're describing? I know you're not saying that, well, meditation is just going to make your life such that you don't experience pain and you don't experience emotional pain. I know that's not what you're saying, but I think that's a concept that people come away with or a, or a misunderstanding of meditation, that it becomes a, a panacea and that you are just living in a warm bath <laughs> or something like that. So can you speak to these things? Sure. It's a big topic. Uh, yeah, it's huge. That, that you're it's opening huge. up. And again, I want to approach it in a sort of twofold way. One level at which this practice addresses challenging emotions, and then a deeper level at which it addresses challenging emotions. So Great. the first level is sort of everything we've been talking about. And it's along the lines of the famous saying that says, pain is mandatory, suffering is optional. Hmm. And Pain means that, yes, human life includes pain. There's not any way to avoid pain. But if we define suffering as the pain that we experience because we think we shouldn't be experiencing pain, then that's optional. I can have mm -hmm. a painful emotion and there's a certain amount of discomfort associated with that. But if I add to that some strong belief that feeling bad is wrong, I'm then going to have even more discomfort. And it's going to, you know, result in the kind of contributing to my existential sense of dissatisfaction. So the practice of no problem allows us to learn how to experience our emotional pains without making a problem out of them, without mm. adding to them some sense that their very existence is wrong. And as you said, that creates a sense of space. It doesn't make the pain go away, but it really does create a sense of space around the inevitable experience of emotional pain that we all yeah. have. Um, yeah. And that can be invaluable for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, it just 
it actually does feel better to have some space around it, even if the pain itself doesn't feel any different. Absolutely. But more importantly, that space it allows us to make better decisions in relationship to our pain. You know, one of the things that often happens is that pain makes us reactive. So we experience pain, right. there's no space, we react with actions that may and often are not the best responses that lead to more pain later. And then, you know, the cycle right. continues. Pain, right. reaction, bad choices, more pain, reaction, bad choices, more pain. And the, the pain keeps compounding over time. Where if there's space, then there can be pain, a spacious recognition of pain that results in non-reactive, better choices that over time, hopefully, will actually bring us into a more and more positive space. Yeah, that's great. Would you say that similar to what you just described, this relationship between the difference between pain and suffering? And I recently interviewed Dr. Richard Miller. He works with trauma survivors, wounded warriors, soldiers who have PTSD. And one of the things he teaches them in this meditation process, he teaches them to help them heal through the trauma is he basically asks them to invite those painful experiences to welcome them, really invite them to the table and just welcome them into the space. I don't want to even say embrace them, but really just to welcome them, mm -hmm. to just let them be there. And when he described it, and he, he has an incredible success rate helping these soldiers heal, some of them healing trauma that they've had since Vietnam and then some of these guys going through this process and finding the ground of themselves by going through this process and experiencing very profound healing. But one of the first things he teaches them, it sounded very similar to what you were describing, and I, I wonder what you thought of that. I think it's very similar. I think I should find out more about uh, Dr. Miller's work because it sounds exactly similar. Yeah, and it leads me into the second level that I wanted to speak about because, and, and this I'm sure relates very directly to what uh, Dr. Miller is doing, a lot of our emotional pain and our emotional wounding occurs because of things that happened to us in the past. So in the mm -hmm. case of the veterans you spoke about, it's probably things that happened while they were in, in, in active duty. Yeah, But for all of us, things occurred which were not right, which were not attuned, in some cases were brutal. And those actions, essentially, they wounded us. So the way I like to think about that is they distorted our being. Hmm. You know, it's, it's like you have a, a nice round lump of clay and then you throw it against the wall and it gets bent out of shape and you keep doing that over and over again. Right. And the thing is, I believe, and there is certainly some evidence to, you know, that would back this up, but I believe that a lot of the pain that distorts our being and that gets sort of trapped in our being, if we allow it the space to emerge in a circumstance which is safe and supportive and holding, that that's part of a natural healing process. Yeah. You know, that the, the distortions want to come out. The lump of clay wants to return to its normal shape. But as it does, uh, it releases trapped pain. 
And so in meditation, I have often experienced, and I know many, many people do, you know, and you were asking, well, what are, what are the things that people resist? One of the things that people resist is that when they start to let go and let everything be as it is or have no problem, they, they, they basically are giving up control. One of the things that can happen is that some of this old wounding begins to release. Mm. And they start to experience emotional discomforts of all kinds, and it can be scary. And of course, yeah. the reason that we get scared is because we feel like, oh my God, I'm unleashing something that I might not be able to get back. Right. And so our response is to resist the practice, which essentially means stuff the pain back inside. Leave it where it is. It's like Pandora's box. You know, Leave the pain trapped in my being so that mm -hmm. I, it doesn't come out. But as you were saying, in terms of Dr. Miller's results with healing, when you allow the pain to come out, eventually it will come out. Yeah. And the distortion which was holding it will release. And so, you know, the other way that this practice addresses some of our emotional concerns is that it actually becomes a way for us to let go enough so that some of this trapped emotional content can release. And mm. the uh, analogy that I like to use is uh, soda pop. If you have uh, soda in a bottle and you look at it before you've opened the lid, you don't see any bubbles in it. You just see water, right? right? Because under that kind of pressure, the liquid will hold the carbon dioxide in solution so you don't see it. But as soon as you unscrew the lid, and you, then you hear the fizz and all the bubbles start to come out of the solution. Mm. So all of that gas that was trapped inside the liquid, once the mm -hmm. pressure releases, then it starts bubbling out. And, yeah. and the same thing is sort of true of our being. There's a lot of pain and discomfort and fear and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's embedded inside of us. And as long as we keep a certain amount of pressure on ourselves, it won't come out. Yeah. But as soon as we start to relax, as we do in meditation, then some of this stuff starts to bubble out of us. And if we keep relaxing, it will keep bubbling out. And that's a great gift of meditation because it actually allows some of that to release. And it's also something that we have to be careful of because, you know, these things bubble out and it's important for us to be prepared right. to know that that's going to happen and ideally to be meditating in a context with someone who will be able to support us through those kind of emotional upheavals. That's great. That's really clear. Were those the two aspects? Those are the two aspects. The one, Got it. The, the first one is, is just that we create space around our experience of pain. Yeah. The second one is that we relax in a way that allows some of the pain that's been trapped in our being to release itself. Fantastic. All right. So then how would you, someone struggling, how would you support them? Would you urge them to obviously create a safe environment for them to experience that? But how would you coach someone? Would you encourage them to continue to let go and just really let that pain be there and go through it? Or what would be your response? Well, of course, this is going to depend on the individual. Of course, yeah. Um, and it's, 
it's yeah. So knowing this is a kind of hypothetical question, sure. but if yeah. most of the people that I work with are psychologically healthy enough to release a lot of their pain. Yeah. And so, yes, I would coach them by creating a safe environment. I would be someone, because when this emotional pain starts to come out, it's powerful and important to have someone that you trust that you can talk with, mm-hmm. you know, to, so that you're not just alone with all of this stuff coming out. Right. You know, so right. I can become, or some other meditation teacher or some other friend can become someone to talk to, to allow more of the, you know, there's a certain amount of processing that's usually involved. Yeah. Um, which may mean understanding where the pain's coming from. It may not. It may just be having someone to say, wow, this really hurts and have, and, and have someone who's willing to say, I totally get that. And, yeah. you know, one of the main things is that when people start to experience emotional upheaval, is there's some fear that they'll be rejected. So often the thing they need the most is just someone to witness the pain and be unmoved. Mm. Um, So there can be a sense that, okay, I'm not going to lose everyone if I allow this to come out. There may be other people who have experienced more severe trauma for whom some form of a more therapeutic environment would be important. Yeah. Um, And... You know, lots of therapists today are using meditation of different in, in different forms as part mm-hmm. of their treatment. But there's also therapies which are designed to help give us a deeper understanding of the pain that we experience and the suffering that we experience. And for some people, that's going to be important. And, fi- and having an actual trained individual to work with is going to be important. Uh, but as mm-hmm. I said... By and large, the people that I work with are able to go very, very far with just a trusted friend or partner. Moving on, I'd like to ask another question. You recently led a five-day meditation retreat all about the practice of no problem. So a couple of things, like what did you learn about the practice through teaching it in an intensive context like this? Was there anything surprising for you that came out of it? Any new understanding develop for you? And if you were to step back, how would you qualify the result of the retreat and and kind of what kind of experiences were people having? Well, the thing that struck me most about this retreat in terms of what I experienced that maybe I wasn't expecting going into it was I really felt from the start and then had it confirmed over and over again through the retreat that it was very important for the environment of the retreat to allow people the space to have whatever experience they were going to have. And, you know, sometimes in different forms of meditation, we can build up ideas about what kind of experience we're supposed to have. But then those ideas just become another way in which we think reality should be one way that we can then compare our experience to to make it wrong. Right. And instead, I really was emphasizing day after day for people just to make no problem out of whatever experience they were having. And by doing that, what I started to realize is that everybody's on their own journey and that if we give up control, if we allow ourselves 
to find that existential contentment. And if we avoid the temptation to make a problem out of anything, and if we avoid the temptation to manipulate or try to control our experience, then our experience will unfold with exactly what we need for our journey. Mm. And that we can trust that reality will provide the right experiences for us better than our ideas will. And so on the retreat, it was, you know, I really felt it was a, an amazing and, and successful event because by and large, I think everyone found the space to allow their, their experience to unfold completely naturally and without interference. And, and what it meant was that people's experiences were different. It came in different forms and some were personal to them. You know, there was one person on the retreat who recently lost a spouse and they had a major revelation and shift mm -hmm. in their relationship to the grief that they were experiencing. So that's a good example of, you know, emotional upheaval and something really shifted. And for the first time they saw beyond the grief. Mm. Other people had other things like that that were going on that they they had major shifts in. Some people didn't have any personal experience to work through and and had more typically, you know, what we more think of as spiritual experiences and spiritual awakenings similar to some of the things that I described earlier. And I found it amazing and interesting as the person who was leading the retreat to just keep being open to whatever experience people were having without adding any sense of judgment, good or bad, about it. Hmm. And continuing to encourage everyone to just make no problem, keep abiding inside of the space for whatever wanted to happen next, you know, and just allow it to continue. And, you know, one of the feelings that you had, you know, as you said, it was a five-day retreat, but it feels like, oh, you could do that forever because the experience would just keep unfolding. Yeah. And everyone would keep getting whatever it was that they needed next on whatever journey they were on. And the longer you were doing it, the further you could go. And there would be no sense that there would be any natural endpoint. Did you find it challenging at all to maintain this non-judgmental space? Obviously, as we've been talking about through this whole interview, that's such a natural habit. But to create that space, obviously, you had to be really holding that non, totally non-judgmental space and really trust very deeply. Is that, was there a challenge in that for you at all or a process? Right. I found it remarkably easy, hmm. you know, almost natural compared to what maybe I would have imagined. You know, the one thing that you have to contend with is that there are times when someone has an experience that's just either alien to you, not one that you've had, yeah. or not one that you particularly feel a resonance with the value of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so obviously our habit is if we don't kind of immediately see the value of something that we would dismiss it. Right. And right. so part of the practice for me was just not allowing myself to forget 
that I have no idea what's supposed to happen. Yeah. You know, and that whatever is happening is the only thing that could be happening anyway. And as I said earlier, my own spiritual experiences have left me with a deep sense that reality is much bigger than what I can imagine. And so as long as I was able to maintain that sense of the vast and miraculous and ultimately unfathomable reality that we exist in, then I had the space for any experience to arise, whether I could personally relate to it or not. Yeah. And to just have it be what's arising and then to assume that because it's arising it's supposed to arise and there's a reason for it and it doesn't matter whether i know what the reason is or not you know all that matters is that i'm able to hold open the space for people to have whatever experience they're supposed to have so we're getting towards wrapping up the interview but i wanted to ask just a few last questions how do you practice this on a daily basis? You personally, how do you find yourself putting this? One, are you on a regular basis, I don't know, daily or just on a regular basis, do you practice this meditation? I'm assuming to some extent, yes. And then two, outside of what we've already talked about, how do you see that in an applicable embodied context in your life? Well, there's a few things. Yes, I do practice this meditation. And, you know, in addition, I am doing other spiritual practices. Uh, I mm. think it's an, I think it's important for someone who is sharing in this way to not only practice the thing that they have attained some degree of mastery in, which it yeah. is important to do that, of course, and I do do that. Uh, but it's also important to be expanding into new domains to be experimenting with practices that aren't the one that you got matched good for us to be beginners you know to experience yes. ourselves as being beginners yeah. to be under someone else's tutelage in a domain that you're not so familiar with so i've been uh, experimenting with more energetic forms of spiritual practice and other forms of meditation and and then also lots of contemplation and uh, mm. and some physical practices. So mm. I think that's important because it keeps us growing and young at heart, so to speak. Yeah. Young in our yeah. spiritual heart and ever new and beginning and humble. That's great. Um, and so I feel like that's important. And then the other thing is that this attitude of no problem is, you know, it's something that you particularly practice inside the periods of meditation. But it's also something that starts to permeate your experience of life. Mm -hmm. And you catch yourself in life thinking that something is wrong. You don't have to just immediately assume it's not, but it, it creates, as we said earlier, the kind of space to go, well, is that really wrong? Or is it just not the way I want it to be? Right. Because that's, a, that's those are two completely different things. You find in life, that you discover more and more space for things to be however they are and for you not to be so uh, reactive to them. And as I said, in that space, you tend to make better choices. And as you make better choices, you know, your life and the circumstances that you find yourself in present you with less and less of those kind of challenges. So over time, 
that kind of relationship to life allows you to create an amazing life. I mean, I... Fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just thinking that as a meditation teacher, one of the main things that I hope to be able to give to people is the opportunity to live their version of a life that's as good as mine is. Hmm. Because I feel profoundly happy in the life that I'm living, more so hmm. all the time. And I'm able to do what I really think is valuable in the world. And I have a sense that I'm actually making a contribution that matters. And I honestly feel that I am doing exactly what I most want to be doing in my heart of hearts. Not that it's always pleasant and always fun. I work hard, but I'm, I wouldn't change a thing because I am in the position to make the kind of contribution to the world that I want to make. And that's what I really want for everybody that I work with, that they're in the same situation where they feel like their potential is being realized and that they are giving their gifts to the world in a way that makes life feel completely worth living. Awesome. So on that note, do you have any final tips or words of wisdom for someone who may be just starting on the path of meditation? You know, the tip that I would give is to be consistent. Spiritual growth, in a sense, is like investing. If you invest little amounts of money consistently over time, it adds up. Yeah. And in the same way, if you are consistent with your spiritual growth, if you, if you do your practice and you're consistent with it, if you learn new things, if you explore new things, you, you don't have to go, you, you, know, you don't have to spend all your time doing it. Uh, obviously, the more time you can spend consistently, the better, but it's more important to be consistent than to do a lot. Doing a lot in spurts will not get you the same depth of result that doing much less consistently will. You're much better off being consistent over time. And then you'll look back and, you know, it's, most of us have, a, have a, an addiction to immediate experiences. So we want to do the thing that's going to really give us some kind of recognizable difference today. Yeah. But if you are able to avoid the temptation to need that and you can be consistent over time, then you will look back over time and you'll be amazed at how deep the changes are and how much more your life is a reflection of your true potential than it was in the past. So I would say, say that consistency is more important than volume. Thank you, Jeff. And how, so can people work with you directly? And if so, how can they work with you? And, and what kind of resources do you have to share with people if they want to follow up from this interview, learn a little bit more about your work and what you're up to? Tell us where people can find you and, and what you have to offer. I have a variety of downloadable programs, uh, in both in meditation and in uh, philosophy that people can uh, use one of them is housed on about meditation in fact totally absolutely and everyone i will put that in the show notes the link to our course with jeff which is fantastic 
Great. And so those are ways to work with me virtually, which of course is the easiest way to get started. In addition to that, I will be doing another five-day retreat next summer. Uh, I also do some uh, courses that are held partly virtually and, and partly in person. And I have a small number of people that I work with either individually or in small groups. And you can find information about all those ways to work with me on my website, which is just uh, www.jeffcarrera.com. Great. And I will link that up in the show notes. And Jeff, are you still doing your monthly free public meditation? I do. So if you go to my website, uh, you'll see that that I have a new ebook called a love, creativity, and unlimited possibility, which is all about meditation. And uh, if you register to download for that ebook, you'll also be notified every month when I do I do free conference call based meditation classes, one a month, offered to anybody on my mailing list. I just had one, in fact, uh, Sunday, yesterday. So I'll be doing another one in about a month. That's great, everyone. I strongly recommend you go over to jeffcarrera.com. Again, I'll link that up in the show notes. Get the free ebook and get on Jeff's list for his monthly guided meditation. I've done them before. I still listen to Jeff's guided meditations. I love them. They're very powerful and I can't recommend them highly enough. So, so please, after the show, go over there, pick it up. And Jeff, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Great. Thanks very much, Morgan. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jeff. If you want to follow up and download Jeff's free ebook and get on his list to be notified for his free public meditations, which I highly recommend, head on over to the show notes. I've included links there to all of his resources. So you can find the show notes over at www. OneMind.com. That's www.onemind.com. Also, this episode is sponsored by our free Meditation for Life guided meditation experience. Head on over to aboutmeditation.com and you can pick up two free guided meditations. Head on over to aboutmeditation.com and pick those up today. And finally, let me know what you think of the show. Leave me a rating and a review on iTunes. I completely appreciate it. I'm grateful that you take the time to listen to this show. And your feedback is so helpful. I read all of your reviews. Today, I'd like to finish with a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous transcendentalist, who says, Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail.